0: This morning, as we continue our sermon series, All or Everyone In, today we're going to be talking about this concept, I've never preached on this, that is profoundly uh, um, central part of scripture and yet, yet, yet would miss out. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, you're a prophet, priest, and king. Like like you mean it. You know what I mean? Like I hate it when people make me do that. But that's okay because I don't have to do it. So I'm just making you do it. Turn to your neighbor and go, you're a prophet, priest, and king. Ah. One last time. Ready? What? We, we. Queen. Oh, okay. Yes, Michael. You're right. So if you're talking to a, a nice lady. Say, you are a prophetess, priestess, and queen. Last time, go! (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Fred. As significant times throughout the book of Acts... We find this word, all or everyone. The only way to describe this movement that transformed their world for Christ in the New Testament is by the word all. We looked at a number of passages found in the book of Acts. There was this palpable sense, you guys, in the first century church where everyone sort of maybe innately got this. They got that ministry or mission or changing the world in the name of Jesus was not for pastors and the seminary trained or just the apostles, but that it was for everyone or for all. We began this journey talking about how all of us are building blocks and that we need to be an interdependent community. Then last Sunday, we talked about how every single one of us is sent with a mission, that we're all of us, all of us are missionaries. I just uh, was going to pull Haley uh, to, to come up and share. As soon as I came this morning, she pulled me aside. She's like, I really needed to hear that. I said, why? She said, I teach in a really, really tough school system. And by the end of the school year, we might not have any teachers left. And she said... There's also incredibly hard students. And when you said, when you said, Peter, when you go out on a Monday morning, there are hands that only you can hold. There are, there are hands that only you can hold. I, I thought about a student that I particularly know who stole my phone last year. But through that, enabled us to enter into a relationship. And now I'm mentoring her, discipling her. There, there are thirsts that only you can quench. There are, there are people that you could, only you can house. There are words that only you can speak. There, are, there are, By the way, I just not only is Chicago a cold place temperature-wise, but Chicago is just a cold place where people just walk past each other. I made it a point this past week. I'm not the most outgoing person. I made a point this week, coffee shops to hang out at, to say to the person that's taking my order making the coffee, how are you doing today? And I got a couple like, what? How you doing today? I'm doing all right. There's a word that you need to speak to someone that only you can speak. There's a hand that only you can hold. There's a hug that someone is waiting for. That, 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 that God is sending. We are on a mission. And, and, and as Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. People with this, with this palpable sense of mission live with an awareness. They don't just go through the day like, I'm at work. This is work. No, you go about the day and you're looking for opportunities, moments, situations where you go going, God, what, is, what am I to do here? What am I to do here? What am I to do here? And we have this visible sense to speak and to live out. To proclaim and to embody the gospel. Where we go. Now today, as we continue our sermon series, we're going to talk about this this principle, this teaching that everyone is a prophet, priest, and king. As we continue to talk about what it means for us to be on mission. Now, if you come to our church for any length of time, you, you know that what's central to our church is the gospel, right? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And I put up this definition last week. And I'll put it up again. Um, the gospel is the good news. And we 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 pause this on this couple, uh, a couple uh, for a few minutes last week. The gospel is news. It's not advice, it's not instruction. It's what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. We don't have a rule or teachings that say you need to obey this to get to God. Jesus says it's news. What? News. That through Christ the power of God's kingdom is entered. History to renew the whole world. And when we place our faith in the work of Of Jesus Christ, the kingdom power comes in us and begins to work within us. Now, I'll tell you why this is so central. to. By the way, if you're new to our church or just kind of been checking out our church, before you decide on which church you attend and commit to, let me just tell you this. Find a church that's about the gospel and is living it. Don't go, it's a service, good, it's a worship program. Find a church where you know there's a palpable sense in which we know the gospel, we live the gospel, we live out the gospel. Find a church that's about the gospel. Why? Because when you read the Bible, here's what you find. Passages like first, uh, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul says that the gospel is, underline that, is the power of God. He doesn't say the gospel brings the power of God or that the gospel leads to the power of God. He says the gospel is, it is, it is the power of God. Then you have passages like this 1 Peter 2, 1 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the, faith, the, through the living and enduring word of God. Paul says that the gospel is the imperishable seed by which you've been born again. The gospel, the gospel is so powerful in its life transforming quality that to believe it, to accept it, brings about such radical change transformation that you could only describe it as a new birth. The gospel is the power. Now, here's the thing if you've been coming to our church talking about a dangerous teaching. Sometimes that we grow up with go something like this. You become a Christian by believing the gospel, embracing the gospel, and then somehow, but then you grow, you change by what? By trying, by moral effort, by obedience. There's a sense in which we are free from the penalty of sin by the gospel. But then in order to be free from the power of sin, it's obedience, spiritual discipline. And and the Bible couldn't disagree more. The Bible says, gospel is not something that just gets you into the Christian life. It's what enables you to grow. It's what produces change. You've heard me say this before. Gospel is not just the ABCs, the basic elements of the Christian life. It's not just a diving board to which you jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel, listen friends, the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not just a diving board from which we jump into swim. It is a pool in which we swim. The gospel is the pool. It's the entirety of how we not only become a Christian, but grow. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples. There's this passage in Galatians 2.14. Look what it says. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, that is the apostle Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The context is, do you remember? Peter has already had the Cornelius experience. He's already been told and has learned that we are not saved by our ethnic or racial heritage, but that we're saved by the gospel of grace. But what happens? He's in Galatia hanging out with a bunch of Gentiles, and some of his homies from Jerusalem come down. And Peter all of a sudden starts what? Distancing himself from the Gentiles that he's eating with. And so what Paul is doing is he's confronting He's confronting Peter still holding on sin sense of racism ethnic heritage I'm saved by th- he's confronting him but how does he do it he says you're not acting in line with the what with the gospel with the gospel why are you not acting in line with the truth of the gospel this truth that we are saved by grace and grace alone not of anything else let me give you some more examples 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 the church of Corinth is a mess. It is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is about to be fractured apart by division loyalties, right? How does Paul confront them? He says that it is a betrayal of the gospel to bring about party spirit and division in the church. And he uses the gospel to soften their hearts. 2 Corinthians 8. He's going around collecting money for the poor churches. What does he do? He doesn't go, don't you want to be a good Christian? Be generous. He says what? Look at the generosity. Of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be, be radically generous. I mean, I can go on and on. One more example. Ephesians 5. Paul trying to help Christian spouses love each other in a biblical marriage. What does he do? Don't you want to be good Christians? Love each other. What does he do? Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ. Love the church. He constantly, throughout the Bible, pushes them deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. Because the only ministry that changes your life and my life is gospel ministry. Does this make sense? Are you on board so far? Are you on board so far? Okay. Now here's the question: Whose responsibility is that? Whose responsibility is it to bring about gospel ministry into the lives of people? Answer. It's ours. It's our responsibility. That's what we're going today. That's what we're going today, okay? That's what we're going do. By the way, uh, this book has been incredibly helpful in terms of the, the concepts and principles we're gonna talk about. Doing balanced gospel centered ministry in your city. So if anybody wants a, to borrow it, you could ask me, okay? What we're gonna do today is two sections. One it's heavy theological, biblical work. Are you guys, get, are you guys ready to get down or, this morning? Yes? Bible study? Can I, can I get a woohoo? <laughs> Meaning for the first 10, 15 minutes, you're not going to hear stories. All right? We love stories, illustrations. We're going to scripture, Bible study, and then we're going to spend the second half just applying it. Here we go. First Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. He's talking about the temple. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Before Christianity ever came on the scene. Before Christianity ever came on the scene. Before Jesus ever came on the scene. Not just the Jews, but every culture of the world, they had temples. Temples. Why? It was just assumed That there is a massive chasm and distance between God and humans. There's a massive chasm that exists between a holy, righteous God and sinful humanity. There's a massive chasm that exists between weak, fallible human beings and a holy, perfect, righteous God. And how was this chasm bridged? It was bridged in temples by priests who offered sacrifices. The chasm between sinful humanity and a holy righteous, it wasn't just Israelites, holy righteous God was bridged in temples where people went to offer sacrifices by priests, the spiritual experts who mediated on their behalf. Now, do you know why Christianity was so revolutionary? Do you know why the Roman pagans called Christians atheists? They called them atheists. You have no religion. Why? Because Christians had no temples. They met in what? Home. Uh, they had no priests to mediate on their behalf. They had no sacrifices to offer. And these Roman pagans said, What's up? You have no religion. How do you bridge the chasm? And their answer was, The chasm has, the ch- the chasm has been bridged. How? In the person of Jesus. The chasm. Byron, are you tracking with me on this? It's a powerful truth. The chasm between sinful humanity. Sinful humanity, holy, righteous God, has been bridged in the person of Jesus. Do you remember that time the Pharisees are like, what's up? What's you? And Jesus says, to burn this, uh, uh, destroy this temple. And what? I will raise it up in three days. And the gospel writer John says what? He was talking about what? Himself. So Jesus comes and goes, the chasm has been bridged between sinful humanity, holy, righteous God, in my personhood. Carlton, you tracking. The author of Hebrews comes along and says, and there are no more priests to offer sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus is what? The ultimate high priest. There are no more sacrifices to be offered. Why? Because not only the ultimate high priest, but he offered the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of what? Himself. It blew their minds. No temples, no priests, no sacrifices. Why? Jesus has bridged the chasm between sinful humanity, righteous God, now, that alone would have been like, whoa, for first-generation Jews. But then the Bible takes it a step further. Here's what's happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel in the Old Testament are relatively passive, okay? Why? Because they had these things called ministry experts or officials who did all the ministry while people just consumed. Do you remember what they were called? They were called Prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets came from God to the people with the word. Prophets came from God to the people with the word. In other words, the role of the prophetic ministry was to speak, was to teach, was to preach the truth of who God is, his character and his ways to the people. Prophets. Then there were priests. Now, watch this. Priests came from the people to God with sacrifices to mediate on their behalf. Priests worked in temples, and they brought the needs of the people and their sacrifices and offered them to God to reconcile them to God and to have worshiped observances. Priests brought From the people to God. And then there were kings who actually were both accountable to God and the people. The king's responsibility was to make sure that the people of God, Israel, kept themselves accountable to live as God's people and lives of holiness and righteousness. When you read the Old Testament, you see that there were prophets, priests, and kings. Some were good. Some were pretty bad. And then there were a lot in between. And the New Testament comes along, though, and does what? Not only was the ultimate ultimate sacrifice made in Jesus, not only was the temple no longer needed because Jesus is the ultimate temple, the New Testament rolls around and says what? All of these offices have been perfectly fulfilled in the person of who? In the person of who? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate king. And you read the New Testament, you guys, and the New Testament writers begin to push you and go, watch Jesus doing his prophetic ministry. Look at him, look at him. Prophets come from God to the people with the word of truth, speaking the truth, revelation of who God is. Moses said this about Jesus, by the way. Moses said this about Jesus in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen: "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him." And that prophecy is quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts three to refer to Jesus. Do you also remember the time when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, "A prophet is not welcome what in his own hometown." Jesus pushes and says. In my self-revelation, I am the ultimate prophet sent from God. John 1, one: in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then Jesus. Watch him doing priestly ministry. Priests come from the people to God with sacrifices to mediate on God's behalf. And this is what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Prophet Jesus, priest Jesus, and then there was kingly ministry. Kings hold God's people accountable to live as God's people in holiness and righteousness. And again, listen to this passage in Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews?" To which Jesus says, what? I am, as you said. Think of the first generation Christians who are going, No more temples, Jesus is our temple, no more sacrifices, Jesus is a sacrifice. No more prophets? Jesus is our prophet. No more priests? Jesus is our ultimate high priest. And no more kings. John Stott says this. In fact, another way of summing up the Old Testament witness to Christ is to say that it depicts him as a greater prophet than Moses a greater priest than Aaron and a greater king than David that is to say he will perfectly reveal god to man reconcile man to god and rule over man for god in him the old testament ideals of prophecy priesthood and kingship will find their final fulfillment now that alone in itself is pretty cool we sit there going that's But then the New Testament says something else, that if we were to truly get and understand, we would change our world for Jesus. Because you know what he says? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Read it slowly. But you are a chosen people, a royal. Stop. What are you? Royal. What are you? Royal. What are you? You're a king. You. OK. And then, royal, next word? Priesthood. What are you? A, a priest. <laughs> a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is the testimony of Peter and all of the New Testament? He's saying every Christian is, say with me, a what? A king, a prophet, and a priest. To which God's people said, To which God's people said, Amen. Do you know how profound that is? Do you know how profound that is? Think of the trajectory of biblical revelation. And the New Testament comes around and it says, All the prophets, priests, and, po- uh, pr- prophet, priest, and kings pointed to the perfect prophets, uh, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills the perfect. Prophecy of prophet, priest, and king. I'm trying to talk too fast. And then Jesus comes along and says, my work is not done yet. I've just begun the work. Guess who is going to be my prophets, my priests, and kings who will finish the work that I began? And he looks at you and me and says, what? You are my prophets, my priests, and kings. You are my prophetesses and priestesses and queens. Is this good news? Do you know why we're just like, nah, because the weight of this has not, ha, has not impacted us. And the weight of this has not impacted us because we do not recognize the significance of how important this ministry is. Every single one of us, the Bible says, is prophet, priest, and king. Not my opinion. The Bible says every Christian is a prophet, priest, and king. And they're sitting there going, well, okay, okay, okay. I can't, okay, I'm following you. But what does that look like, Peter? That's where we're going to go. What does that look like? Well, if you think about it, all ministry, we said is gospel ministry. All ministry, in fact, is gospel ministry. What is prophetic ministry? Prophetic ministry, I put it up there, speaks the gospel in. What is prophetic ministry? It's speaking the, God. It's telling people. It's sharing. It's teaching. It's speaking. It's preaching. It's anything we do with our mouths to declare who God is, what he has done, his ways. What is priestly ministry? If prophetic ministry is speaking the gospel in, priestly ministry is loving the gospel in. It's loving the gospel and it's encouragement, it's counsel, it's sharing of time and it's resources. How many of us were doing priestly ministry didn't even realize it? Listen to what Hebrews says. Don't forget to do good. To share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Priestly ministry, sharing your life, your goods, counseling, encouraging people, helping people. Priestly ministry is loving the gospel in. You're not just showing. You're just showing, not just telling. And then kingly ministry is then leading the gospel in. It's holding people accountable to live as God's people. All of us, prophets, priests, and kings, are called to do gospel ministry. Prophetic ministry, speak the gospel in. Kingly, uh, priestly ministry, love the gospel in. Kingly ministry, lead the gospel in. Do you know how the first century church changed the world for Jesus? I'll tell you how it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I'm just thinking if first century believers were around America today, they would go, this is a, this is a strange thing that's happening here. All of these people huddle on a Sunday morning, and they worship, and it's glitzy and fancy, and they hear teaching, and then they go home Monday through Saturday and don't live any different from the rest of the world. Because the first century believers are like, what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? What, we don't have pastors. What are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? So, wait, wait. I, first century was like, without ministry was, we, we're prophets, priests, and kings. We thought ministry wasn't experts and seminary trained and pastors. We thought ministry was us. We thought ministry was us living Monday through Sunday as prophets speaking the gospel in, priests loving the gospel in, and kings leading the gospel in. First century believers, I think, would have looked at this entity and thought, that's just really weird, you guys. What are you doing? By the way, First century believers didn't have the option to go, hey, come to church. we got awesome worship. We've got, he's a decent speaker. We've got, you know why? Because you couldn't publicly worship and just bring anybody in. Because then anybody would have been like, what y'all doing? Bound to somebody else besides Caesar as Lord? I'm going to go tell the magistrate. And you could be killed. The only way that the gospel went out in the first century church was people of God said, amen, you're a subversive, live it, speak it in, love it in, lead it in, and they change their world for Jesus. Why is the city of Chicago not being turned upside down? Why is the city of Chicago not being turned upside down with thousands of churches and Possibly hundreds of thousands of people who claim to follow Jesus. Why is the city of Chicago not seeing the glorious news of the gospel being proclaimed and being lived out? Um, two things, two things that first century historians talk about that distinguished Christians and that enabled them to change the world for Jesus was two things. Holy life, Everybody say holy life. Open mouth. One more time. Say Holy life. Open mouth. This is how they live their lives as prophets, priests, and kings. Holy life. Peter says that you are a holy nation. The word holy literally means to be different. Do you know why the early Christians were so effective in gospel ministers, in getting the gospel into the people's lives? This is so convicting for me. The Christians' lives were so radically, beautifully, visibly, tangibly different from their neighbors. That the unbelieving world had to take notice. They couldn't, they couldn't not take notice at the absolutely magnetically beautiful lives that people lived in their work, in their neighbors, in their families. There's an old document, old document called the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. It's written about 50 to 60 AD, although there's some argument about what exactly the, the, the right date of this. Diognetus was a non-Christian, and a friend of his, and we don't know his name, the, the word Mathetes literally means disciple. It's a disciple writing to Diognetus. We don't know his name, but he wrote a letter to this friend, Diognetus, non-Christian, trying to explain Christianity, and this is what he said in his letter. Look at this. Let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them their native land, and their native land is to them every foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They are poor, and yet make many rich. They are short of everything, and they have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but they behave so respectfully. They are mocked, and they always bless in return. There are four things, holy lives that distinguish early century believers that is so convicting for me and us today. One, complete absence of racism. The first century Christians were Romans, Greeks, Jews, Asians, Africans. This incredible mix, diversity, flooded into the church. But here's what Christianity did Christianity gave them a new identity, Christianity gave them a higher authority than their race and their culture. Christianity comes in, and it didn't obliterate someone's culture. It didn't obliterate their ethnic identity. What Christianity was, that was, it gave them a higher identity and higher authority than their culture. So here's what happened. Christians were able to look at their culture and go, my culture is made in the image of God. So there are parts of my culture that is absolutely worthy to celebrate, but there are parts of my culture that are fallen and these redemption. So Christians were able to look at each other and go, there are parts of your culture I appreciate, I love, but there are also parts of my culture that is in need of redemption. And they cut racism at its root because they found their identity in Christ and were able to critique their culture and appreciate others. Second thing is that they had a high view of life. They do not kill unwanted babies. Think about this. It's a culture in which it was normal back then. If a family had a baby girl, they would throw the baby into the river, and that was acceptable. Masters could kill their slaves without punishment or retribution. Christians came along. This is so... Christians came along and said, every single life is made in the image of our Father and bear dignity so every life is valuable third thing they were absolutely committed to a biblical sex ethic i know i'm talking in 2014 to a group of people who live in a chicago a like chicago this is a culture in which the pagan sex ethic was like an appetite meaning if i'm hungry i go eat if i feel like having sex i had sex and christians come along and go here's what god intended sex for God intended sex to say to one other person, this is my way of saying to you, I am completely, exclusively, legally, permanently, wholeheartedly committed to you. And I'm not going to use it to say anything else. And these Christians who came from a pagan sex ethic of, when I get hungry, I have food. When I want to have sex, I want to have sex. And there's temples and all kinds of things I go do that to. These Christians embrace this radical sex ethic. That said, sex is meant to be. A commitment, exclusive, permanent, legally, in every other way. I am solely committed to you. In that context. And they were liberated. They felt totally not bound, but liberated. And their neighbors said, what happened to you? Fourth thing that happened to them was they, had a, they were radically generous. It says they're poor and yet make many rich. They're short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They were short on things because they were so radically generous. And yet they had plenty of everything because they lived a radically simpler lifestyle. What would it be like for our neighbors to look at us and go, they're radically generous like the first century Christians when a plague would hit a city and families would put out their moms and dads and sons and brothers out into the street because they didn't want to die. And a bishop of that town gathers all the Christians of that town into town square. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out into the town and we're going to gather the people who have been throwing out their families. And we're going to bring them into our homes. And we're going to care for them. And the first century pagan world looked at them and said, We'll find this writing. Julian, who was also called the apostate, how would you like to be called your name and then the apostate, right? That was his name, Julian the Apostate. He's an emperor that wanted to revive paganism and just get rid of Christianity. This is what he says to a friend of his. Speaking of Christians, he says, Their success lies in their charity to all. They take care for not only their own poor, but ours as well. How did a bunch of Christians who didn't have power in that empire, a culture of infanticide, immorality, a culture of idolatry, a culture of racism, how did they, a small group of marginalized people, churn that world upside down? Their lives were unmistakably beautiful, beautiful. And so different. Can this say about you? Complete absence of racism. Can we just talk about that real quick? We talked about how, we talked about how the sign, one of the signs that the gospel has entered your heart is that you have friends, deep friends that you can look at and go, if not for Jesus, this is impossible. Are your unbelieving neighbors able to look at you and go, how the heck you all friends? Jesus, in a culture that says sleep with whoever you want to, sex, it's free, it's love, are we embracing a radical commitment to biblical sex that that says no, 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 this is to say to somebody, I am completely, wholly exclusively committed to you, and I'm not going to use it to say anything else to anybody else. Are you radically generous? Can it be said about you? Don't have much. Why Just keep giving it away? But you have plenty to spare. Why? I'm just going to live simpler, 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 simpler. We're doing okay as a church, so can I just encourage you a little bit? I got a series of emails from Dave and Amy, our warming center directors. I was like, oh, it was just, you guys know, this winter has been brutal. 15 people so far, I think the news has been killed because of the weather. And we got news from Dave and Amy because they keep us track that there were some folks who was regular guests at our warming center who perished because of the cold. And a side note, can some of you, if you need something to pray for, can you pray that God would somehow give us a facility that would be open 365 days so when somebody needs a warm place that we would be able to give it to them? Um. This is what Dave said as he reflected on this. He said, this interaction with one of the men is a reminder to me that we are called to love fully today everyone we interact with because we do not know what tomorrow holds. What if every single interaction we had somebody, we said, this might be the last person. This person has an opportunity to be shown the love of God. We would be different. Radically, beautifully different. Holy lives. Open mouths was the other though. I'm just going to give a series of examples, okay? What does it mean, open mouths, to live as prophets, priests, and kings? Here's somebody. By the way, when I give these examples, don't go, well, that's not the exact example that I could think of. So I give these examples so you guys smart can go, yeah, I could kind of see how that would relate to this. Here's somebody who's becoming a new community. And you connect with somebody in our church who's a new Christian, and they're going through tons of doubts, tons of doubts about their Christian faith. So you approach one of the pastors, and you go, hey, I went through something similar to what they're going through, just doubting about Christianity, doubting about Jesus. Can you recommend eager resources? And you get recommended a six- to ten-week course on what it means to go over the essence of the Christian life. And you say to that person, hey, I've been through the same thing you've been through. Tons of doubts. Would you be willing to meet with me once a week over coffee? Let's talk about the various topics that give you doubt. What is that? Open mouth. Here's another opposite example. You meet somebody in our church who's a new Christian, and they're just arrogant. They're just arrogant. They're they're just arrogant, and they're just making a big mess out of themselves, and they're blown here and there, as James says, by every wind and teaching. And you lovingly approach that, brother, and you go, hey, 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 would you mind sitting down with me? Because I'd love to be able to just kind of share with you some of the things that I had to go through in my early days as a Christian and i love to be able to just share with you i don't have to do bibles to just share with you some of the things that's taught me about the essence of the christian life and the guy goes maybe to which you go okay think about it and we'll pray together open mouth here's another one most of the people go to small groups and go what can i get out of it 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 they don't look like me they don't look like me they don't look like me i don't like it here i don't like it here i don't like it here and you go that's not right that's not right that's not right Hint, hint. And you go, instead of going to my small group, although I'm gonna prepare really well to share. What if I go to small group this week and I go, I'm gonna look for somebody who's hurting. I'm gonna look for somebody who's in need. That dude's usually But he's really quiet today. So after small group, you go, hey, hey, hey man, what's going on? What's going on? I'm just going through some stuff, that's all. Hey, would you would you be willing to meet? Maybe we could just pray together, huh? And if you want to, we could study something. We could pray together. And the guy says, Sure. You're a young mom. Lots of young moms in our church. Lots of young moms. And you look around, and you go, Man, young moms are having a hard time connecting with each other. Why? They're busy. They're overwhelmed. So you go, You know what? I'm just going to open my home. I'm going to open my home regularly. Invite all the moms in our church to come. And all the moms show up. And then they bring their non-Christian friends too. So all of a sudden, you got a bunch of moms and a bunch of little kids running around. It's crazy. And all of a sudden, one of the young moms go, you know what? I've just been going through some things with God. And another mom goes, you too? Yeah, me too. What about you? Me too. Really? Yeah. Hey, would you guys, what what, what would you think think about not just, you know, hanging and coffee and donuts and chatting? That's good too. What if we spent a little bit of time maybe doing some scripture study? Or you're, you're a married couple. You see a married couple in our church and you go, man, they're really, really struggling. Because you realize that most of us bring our family issues into our marriages. Can I get an amen? Amen. And you realize we all have issues. And you know, you're you a little bit further along in the Christian life. And you look around and go, hey, 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 And you delicately and discernly approach a young couple and you go, hey, you know, we've we would love to just meet with you and just share with you. We've only been married like for four years, but you've been married like four weeks, so. (laughs) So what do you think about us meeting together and maybe studying book of Ephesians chapter five and seeing what God has to say about marriage? Or you're a dude, you're a dude. Dudes don't like talk about intimate things, you know. By the way, can I just share something with you guys? I get really uncomfortable when men are very like verbally affectionate with me, you know. Um, I have this older gentleman, I love him to death, I love him to death, his name is, well, yeah, I love him to death, and, uh, and man, whenever, whenever we spend time together, before we leave, he looks at me and he goes, Peter, I love you, and every time he does it, I go, all right, <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating, I'm like, all right, bye. One of these days I'm gonna actually say to him Love you too, man. One of these days, one of these days. But you're a dude, you're at work, right? You don't like talking about things, but your coworker, the guy next to you goes, Hey man, what'd you do this weekend? And you've never told them you're a Christian or you go to church. But this week you're like, All right. Uh, I went to church. You did? Yeah, I went to church and I'm a Christian. I go to church. The guy goes, You are I'm like, Yeah, I am. Why? And he goes, Well man I just got some major anger issues like major anger issues man like it's bubbling up and it's just hard and then you go and you know, actually I was sitting in church and my pastor talked about forgiveness and he got me thinking about some things about forgiveness and whew, it's been really hard but it's been very helpful do you want to like meet sometime and talk about it what is that open oh. can I give a couple more examples then we're done you invite someone to church because you bribe them. You go, I'll buy you lunch if you come to church with me. <laughs> so they go, they go fine. Hint, hint. So they go fine. So after church, you take them to I don't know Dunlees or something, or, or you know, or the Anong or wherever, you, somewhere close. And you go, and the guy's sitting there going, dude, what is that whole thing about? Like, why you all, what, what, why you all sing like worship? What is that? What is that? Well, well that's actually a big part of. What we do as people of God. And your pastor, what's up with that? Like, why is he shouting and screaming and yelling? Like, what's up with that? You go, well, he's passionate. This is what he does. Why do you go to church again? And you go, it's a big part of my life as people of God to worship our God because the church not only gathers, but it scatters. Do you want to find out more? You see, I can go on. What are all those things? One more example. You're sitting in a coffee shop, and you overhear a conversation, and they're going, Christianity is like all other religions, man. And you go, actually. <laughs> um, I've done this before, by the way. Actually. Excuse me? Actually. No, no, no. I just, do you mind if I jump in? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to share a couple of things. Fine, what is it? Actually, you know, I'm a Christian. Christianity is different from all religions. See, most religions say that we have to do all these things for, God to reach, for us to reach up to God, but Christianity says we have a God who reached down to us because he knew that we couldn't work up our things to reach him. And Christianity says that Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived. By the way, you're saying this just like I am. Lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So that when we believe in him, the death that he died becomes applied to us, and all the punishment we are do is taken away forever by his substitutionary death. And, and the life that he lived, the perfect life, becomes ours so that when God sees us, he sees us as perfect, righteous, and holy. So you see, Christianity is not like all other religions. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> what is that? It's what? It's minding your own business? No. <laughs> what is that? What is that? It's open mind. Church, 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 I could go on and on and on, but here is the challenge. Are we living our lives holy, different, radically beautiful, just just attractive? And people are going, why do you live? And by the way, by the way, if you're living this radically beautiful life, be prepared to open your mouth. Because they're going to say to you at some point, why are you different? ask you? Why are you different? And are we opening our mouths in simple and profound ways to minister the gospel in every day, everywhere? One little note and then, Cece, see, see, you can come on up. Actually, we're about to finish. What? Well, let me just say this, prophet, priest, and kings. There are some of you who are going to walk into our church and you're going to go, they stink at that. And whatever that is, let me put it this way, whatever that is, do you know why you notice that that you think we stink at? Maybe it's because God sent you to this church because you have a kingdom mission to address that. See, does it make sense? See, maybe some of us are more prophetic and we love to speak the gospel in, but maybe there are a lot of us who are more priestly. We love the gospel in, right? And you're looking around and you're going, I see a lot of single moms. Who's taking care of them? I see a lot of people who are struggling with s- sex addiction and, and 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 drug addiction. Who's caring for them? Well, I see a lot of people who are just broken, they don't have homes, they don't have food. What are we doing to meet their needs? I see families that are broken and hurting. What are we doing as a church to care for them? Do you know why you notice that? Because God wired you to notice that. And you can be a critic or a servant. Michael, are you with me? A critic and a servant see the exact same thing, but they react to it totally differently. Can I just say this? Anybody can be a critic. It's easy. You just sit on your, uh, and you just complain. But a servant, Mr. Dan Radakovich, because you live this, says, "I see a hole. I see a hole. I see a hole." And I'm not just gonna criticize, because that's easy. I'm gonna do something about it. So prophets, priests, and kings, you just sitting on your butt? Are you look around going, "We are to preach the gospel and love the gospel and"? And leave the gospel in. What am I doing? What am I doing for the kingdom? Where do you get the power to do this? First Peter 2. Go back to it. Verse 6. Where in scripture it says, See I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the Where do you get the power? Any Jesus is the cornerstone. Any Jesus is the cornerstone. Let me just say it straight up. You and I have no shot to live this sacrificially on our own strength. You and I have no shot, no shot to be this bold and courageous, to be in a coffee shop and actually open our mouths because we are terrified, many of us, of rejection and looking like a fool. We have no shot, you guys, to live this beautifully, holy, radical lives unless there is a power greater than us that has invaded our hearts, that's given us new boldness, new courage, new identity, new worth. And what is that? It's Jesus. And the question to you and me is not, is Jesus your foundation? Do you believe in Jesus? The question you and me facing this morning is, is Jesus your foundation? If money is your foundation, you will never, never, never be radically generous. If someone's love and acceptance is your identity, you will never, never, never be able to live the biblical sex ethic. If your cultural, racial identity is a thing that you get your self-worth from, you will not be able to love people of other cultures in the way we ought to. What is your foundation? And is he precious to you? He says... He is the precious cornerstone. And I'm not asking, do you believe in him? I'm saying, is he precious to you? Jesus precious to you if you can't think without Jesus. You can't feel without Jesus. You can't act without Jesus. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Throughout the week, do you meditate on him? Do you think about him? Are you in awe of him? You, do you marvel at him? Is he, is he precious to you? How does he become that precious to you? Peter says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know the only way that you and I will be able to overcome our fear of rejection from the world is to know that he was rejected for you, is to know that he was rejected for me. And when that assurance melts our hearts and becomes a reality, We'll be able to get beyond our fear of rejection and live radically beautiful lives for Jesus and speak the gospel boldly. And lastly, good news, great news for somebody sitting there going, there is no way that God could use me as a prophet, priest, and king. I'm an utter failure. I have good news for you. Because Jesus says to Apostle Peter, hey, you're a big failure. John 21, will you feed my sheep? Me? Me? Yeah, you, will you feed my sheep? Me, me, I'm not even rocking, I'm like, quicksand. me. Will you feed my sheep? Why? The greater your failure, Peter, the greater potential for you to understand the depth of God's grace. Brandy, you're hearing what I'm saying? You resonating with me, sister? For anybody here going, I'm an absolute, utter, miserable failure, Peter, as a father, as a dad, as a Christian, whatever the case might be, Jesus says, there is hope in redemption, beyond all redemption. Why? My ability, to use you should, as prophet, person, king, the greater your failure, the greater the possibility that you'll understand the depth of my grace. Which means you can be more kind, more patient, and more loving. With the failures of the world and that is good news for failures like me and for failures like you and whom god is saying i've got ministry for you to do peter is prophet priest and king yourself up and say use me the holy light and fire of God rests upon you prophet, priests and kings you have a kingdom mission that God has specifically designed for you this week and no one else can do speak the gospel in love the gospel in lead the gospel in this week so that our God would get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and so that this world might come to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ as King as Lord as Savior in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said